A number of unusual deaths, law enforcement software, mob families, casinos, drug running, arms dealing, and a possible nationwide, possibly international conspiracy may be known as the octopus. This wild and complicated tale reads like a whole series of thriller novels and is further proof that the world is weird indeed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse, Octopus's Octopus Garden, 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 Dan, Dan Casalero, Inslaw, and, and more. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, and if you like what we do, donate via our Buy Me A Coffee page. We'd also appreciate it if you'd review us wherever you listen to us and on IMDb. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Complicated Life, a song by the Kinks on their 1971 album, Muswell Hillbillies. All right, here's a story for you. Get comfortable. Tucson, Arizona escrow agent Charles Chuck Morgan left home for work on March 22, 1977. He didn't make it to the office, and he didn't come home that night. Three days later, on the 25th, he showed up at home at 2 in the morning with handcuffs on his wrists and a plastic handcuff on one ankle. He seemed unable to speak, so he communicated with his wife, Ruth, who had been awake and worried about him, using a notepad and pen. He wrote that there was a hallucinogenic drug in his throat, and if he swallowed it, it would damage his entire nervous system. Naturally, she wanted to call the police or at least a doctor, but he refused, saying it would put them and their daughters in danger. He was glad she had not yet reported him missing. He just needed her to take care of him until he could speak again. Once he got better, he confessed that he was not, in fact, an escrow agent at all, but an agent for the Treasury Department. These are agents that mainly try to stop counterfeiting forgery and fraud. And this had been the case for the last two or three years, escrow agent being his cover. On March 22nd, he said he had been abducted and held, and those men had taken away his Treasury ID. Now, apart from that, he couldn't tell his wife anything more. The less she knew, the safer she and their daughters were. So, life continued, though Charles bought a new Mercury Cougar, a little faster than his previous ride, and started wearing a bulletproof vest whenever he left the house, and he always took his 357 Magnum revolver with him as well, wearing it in a holster. Then, on June 7th, he disappeared again. Nine days later, Ruth got a phone call from a woman who said, quote, Chuck is all right, Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 8, and then hung up. 
Two days after this cryptic telephone call on June 18th, Chuck's body was found in the desert 40 miles west of Tucson near Cells and the Tohono O'odham Nation Reservation, a few hundred feet from the road. He was lying on the ground next to his new car, shot twice in the back of the head with his own gun. He still had on his bulletproof vest as well as a belt buckle that contained a concealed knife. A pair of sunglasses was found near the scene, but they were not his. In his pocket, there was a piece of paper with driving instructions to this exact location in his own handwriting. Inside the car, sheriff deputies found CB radios and several other weapons, plus plenty of ammunition. They also discovered the car had been modified in a way that allowed it to be unlocked from a concealed catch near the fender. On one of the car seats, they found a white handkerchief folded up, and inside was one of Charles's teeth. Intriguing, but it got weirder. Clipped to his underwear, they found a $2 bill. On this bill was written the phrase Ecclesiastes 12 with arrows pointing to a number 1 and a number 8 in the bill's serial number. Under this was a list of seven Spanish surnames beginning with the letters A through G, one for each letter. On the back of the bill, the images of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were numbered 1 through 7, and there was a hand-drawn map of the area between Tucson and the Mexican border, specifically the towns of Robles Junction and Salacity. The coroner said that Chuck had been dead for only about 12 hours or so when he was found. Despite the fact that no fingerprints of any kind, including Chuck's, were found anywhere on the scene, including the gun, Charles did have gunpowder residue on his fingers, and so the police ruled it a suicide. However, the gunpowder was on his left hand, and he was right-handed. Plus, how did he shoot himself in the back of the head twice? And then, how did he wipe the entire crime scene of all fingerprints after shooting himself? But the cops were happy with suicide, though they did a little bit of investigating to try and figure out why. They discovered that he'd spent the week before his death hiding out in a motel. A woman referring to herself only as Green Eyes later told the police that she had seen Morgan in that motel where he showed her a briefcase for the cash. He said he'd been trying to buy off a hitman who had been contracted to kill him. She said she was the woman who had called Ruth Morgan on June 16th, saying that Chuck was fine and giving that cryptic reference to Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 8. Though the police were happy with the suicide narrative, the medical examiner's office refused to go along with it and instead just labeled it, quote, an unsolved death. And that, it would seem, was that. But there were some tantalizing loose ends in the case. Was the fact that Morgan had been a Freemason somehow important? Whose sunglasses were those? And what was with his tooth in that handkerchief? Now, there's that map on the back of the $2 bill, which police said was of the area and included the towns of Robles Junction and Salacity. Now, the problem here is that there is a town called Robles Junction, but there doesn't seem to be one named Salacity at all. There is a hamlet named Sasabe, which straddles the Arizona-Mexico border, and this is a well-known smuggling and illegal crossing center. And, the, and it's a straight shot down Highway 286 from Robles Junction. So maybe that what was meant? Or was salacity somehow code? It is a word that means having undue interest in sexual matters. A short while after Charles's death, two men came to the house. They told Ruth they were from the FBI and flashed their identification very quickly so she never really got a clear look. They then proceeded to look through the house obviously looking for something. Well, whatever it was, they didn't find it, and they left. 
When Ruth was contacted by journalist Don Devereaux, she told him this story but said she'd neglected to write down the two FBI agents' names. Devereaux called the FBI to confirm they said they'd never heard of Charles Morgan, even though Charles's lawyer said that he had been interviewed by two men who claimed to be FBI agents. Devereaux also heard tell that Morgan had done some escrow work for a local mafia family, including possibly securing some gold and platinum, both of which are great for laundering money. This whole area west of Tucson is riddled with racketeers engaged in money laundering and drug smuggling. More than 500 such criminals in the area by one estimate. Herbie Herbie Goes goes bananas. Bananas! That was the fourth of the Herbie the Love Bug movies and easily the worst one. It would also come to light not long before his first disappearance, that he said was an abduction, that Charles Morgan had given testimony behind closed doors in a state investigation by the Arizona Attorney General's office on illegal activity along the border, specifically about activity at a particular local bank. Some said Sicilian-born Joseph Bonanno, the crime boss known as Joe Bananas and Don Papino, ran a branch of his mafia syndicate around Tucson and he was part of the entire affair. Joe Bananas had had a home in Tucson in the 40s and as he got older spent more and more time there. Morgan apparently kept written records of every illicit transaction he was part of, maybe as some kind of an insurance, and maybe some thought Bonanno had found out about this. Or had Morgan been telling the truth to his wife and he really was a secret agent working for the Treasury Department, keeping records to later use in court against Joe Bananas? But a few people have pointed out, though, it's not really standard operating procedure for crime organizations to abduct somebody and then let them go and then go get them again. Usually if they get you, that's kind of it. It's usually just game over. These organizations are not known for their finesse. However, such mind games are part and parcel of Spook Street. That's exactly the kind of nonsense government agents might get up to. So, was he killed by order of someone in the intelligence community? After details about this mysterious case, many of them supplied by journalist Don Devereaux, were aired on the TV show Unsolved Mysteries in February 1990, the show received a number of interesting communications. Yes, Chuck Morgan had been involved in money laundering using purchases of gold and platinum from 1973 until his death in 1977, some said, but not as a government agent. He himself had been profiting from it. He was a criminal. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about billions of dollars here. Now, there might have been some CIA agents working undercover and all this who decided the rewards were just too good and went on the take, though it's hard to believe it was that widespread. There were also tales of the involvement of people from the Department of Defense as well as Vietnamese government officials. Maybe Morgan knew too much about somebody with connections like a corrupt politician. This is what one of his daughters, Megan Hadley, thinks. Three months after Unsolved Mysteries aired their episode about Charles Morgan, a man named Doug Johnston left work at a computer graphics company in Phoenix, Arizona at 11 p.m. on May 14, 1990. An hour later, he was found dead in his Toyota station wagon still in the parking lot. He'd been shot once behind the ear from a distance of 12 inches or closer. A 25 caliber bullet casing was found. Despite the fact that Johnston was right-handed and he was shot behind the left ear and no gun and no gunpowder residue were found on him in the car or in the area, the police ruled it a suicide. 
Now, the interesting thing is who lived right across the street from the spot Johnston worked and died at and also drove a Toyota station wagon the same color? Journalist Don Devereaux, who had supplied the TV show Unsolved Mysteries with so much information about Charles Morgan. Shortly after Johnston's death, a fellow journalist contacted Devereaux and told him that someone he knew at the CIA had told him that Johnston had been killed by mistake and that Devereaux had been the actual target. Since he lived right there and drove a similar car, it was an easy mistake to make. And yes, this was all because of his reporting on Charles Morgan. This CIA contact also added that there were still probably contracts out on Devereaux's life and also into anyone who poked their noses into Morgan and the events outside Tucson in 1977. So it's really best to just leave it be and keep your head down. A little over a year later, a writer in Washington, D.C. named Dan Casolero, working on a different story altogether, contacted Don Devereaux for some details about Morgan's gold purchases. Devereaux started assembling what information he had, but before he could send it on, Casolero was found dead in a hotel bathtub. Squid Game, a reference to the 2021 South Korean hit Netflix series, and yes, I am aware that squid and octopuses are not the same thing. Dan Casolaro had a number of interests, with journalism being only one of them, and he wasn't really a journalist. He was a poet who liked boxing and Arabian horses and sometimes did some writing. Though, when he was in the mood, he wrote quite a bit, sometimes on interesting topics like opium smuggling into the U.S. by Chinese agents, Fidel Castro's covert intelligence apparatus, and Soviet involvement in Cuba. Though, he only got his work published occasionally, and usually then it was in a tabloid. He wrote a book of short stories in 1973, and in 1981, a novel called The Ice King that pretty much no one read about lost ink and gold. He may have also worked on the script for a 1978 short film about Arabian horses in Egypt called Thou Shalt Fly Without Wings, A Celebration of the Horse. As the Washington Post later put it, Casalara was, quote, not a success. He was more of a dreamer than a go-getter. But still, he got some stuff done. In 1979, he co-founded Computer Age Magazine and then ended up selling his shares in 1990 at a loss. That same year, a friend told Dan he might want to look into the Inslaw case, which he might think was interesting. The House Judiciary Committee had opened a formal investigation into this the year before, and all sorts of interesting things were coming to light. This just might be the break that Dan needed. Inslaw was the 1981 rebranding of the nonprofit Institute for Law and Social Research, which was developed in Washington, D.C. in 1973 to foster automation in law enforcement using computer software. They developed the Comprehensive Justice Information System, or CGIS, now used in a number of areas, including prosecutors, officers, and corrections, as well as courts for both adult and juvenile cases and even traffic courts. They then made Modulaw, which helps tracking of litigation in insurance cases, corporate law, and was used by private law firms and investigators, including claims departments and special investigation units. And then in the late 70s, they created the Prosecutor's Management Information System, or PROMIS, to help law enforcement monitor cases and keep clear records. Basically, this tracks paperwork and people in the system. 
By 1981, Promise had been installed on computer systems around the country, including the 20 largest U.S. attorney's offices. Because Promise was created using funds from the Law Enforcement Assisted Administration, there was a bit of a snag since Congress had disbanded that group in 1980. As a result, Earlier versions made pre-1980 were deemed to be in the public domain. But when the Institute for Law and Social Research, which was a nonprofit, changed their name to INSLAW and became a for-profit company in 1981, they tried to say that they owned all the versions of the software, including the previous ones. Needless to say, many jurisdictions balked at this, especially since a lot of them had actually purchased the software, but did not yet have the hardware required to run it, which seems stupid, but that's your tax dollars at work. Many headaches were born and several stopgap measures were implemented, but by February 1985, INSLA had to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. The Department of Justice was listed in the filing as one of the creditors. During the hearings, DOJ witnesses were, quote, evasive and unbelievable, in the words of the presiding judge, George F. Basin. Among the shenanigans was trying to turn the Chapter 11 into a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, which is the difference between a reorganization, that's Chapter 11, and a liquidation, that's Chapter 7. The DOJ also used several tactics to get newer post-1981 versions of the software without paying for them by saying that they were also public domain. They, quote, took, converted, stole Inslaw's enhanced promise by trickery, fraud, and deceit, said Judge Basin. He finished his bench ruling in January of 1988, favoring Inslaw, who kept lawsuits going, asking the public integrity section of the DOJ to look into possible perjury by a previous judge and Department of Justice witnesses. However, the PIS declined to do so. Later, Inslaw would claim there had been a conspiracy to cause them to fall into bankruptcy so that their assets, notably the promised software, could be snatched up by a VC firm called Biotech founded by Earl Bryan, a doctor and businessman who bought the Financial News Network in 1987 and then changed Biotech's name to Infotechnology in an effort to confuse matters. In 1988, the company bought the Newswire service UPI, and in an effort to get good loans for both FNN and UPI, Bryan inflated the value of both companies. AT&T may also have been implicated in this attempt to kill Inslaw and divide up the spoils, as was Attorney General Ed Meese. However, a Senate committee found insufficient evidence of these rather wild claims. A Senate report issued in September 1989 criticized DOJ members, but found no conspiracy of any kind. But then the House Judiciary Committee opened their own investigation. And this was the state of things in 1990 when Dan Casolaro was advised by a colleague to poke around into this giant mess. Among the new allegations was that Earl Bryan, the VC guy, had got a hold of an enhanced version of the Promise software and handed that off to computer expert Michael Riconosciotto to modify it further. The idea, according to an affidavit by Riconosciotto, was, quote, to support a plan for the implementation of Promise in law enforcement and intelligence agencies worldwide by Mr. Bryan and his company, Infotechnology, who actually did not own the rights to the software at all. It would later come out he'd hired Riconosciotto to make a modified version of it, which he would then claim was a brand new product. 
It later came out that Brian had sold his version of Promise to the Singaporean Armed Forces as well as Israeli intelligence for several million dollars, and he managed to get public domain versions, which he then repackaged as a bespoke software, and he sold these to the governments of Jordan and Iraq. Dan Casolaro started sniffing about, finding links to a number of other scandals of the time, including the October Surprise Conspiracy Theory of 1980, which is covered in a previous episode. But in brief, the idea is that backroom conversations led to the delay of the American hostages in Iran until Ronald Reagan could get elected president in 1980. And the Reagan camp did this because they'd heard a deal was close and they wanted to prevent Carter, who was running for re-election, from pulling off a, quote, October surprise by getting the hostages released right before the November election. He also found links to the Iran-Contra affair, which came out in 1985, where Americans illegally trained guerrilla fighters in Central America to overthrow legally elected governments and illegally sold weapons to those groups as well as to Iran in order to get those hostages released back in the early 80s. And connections to the BCCI banking scandal. BCCI was the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, based in Luxembourg, a bank that started off being very above board and even laudable, but it would turn out was very possibly the most corrupt financial institution in Western history. While pretending it was focused on helping so-called third world nations and citizens, it was really just a Ponzi scheme that targeted small-scale investors. It also laundered money for criminals and dictators, like so much money it's almost impossible to comprehend. And just as it looked like the hammer was going to fall, $20 billion just up and disappeared from BCCI's accounts. Funny, huh? So while looking into this complicated Inslaw mess, Casolero met with Bill Hamilton, Inslaw's CEO, who gave him a 12-page memo that Michael Reconacioto had written detailing some of the funny business Earl Bryan had been up to and the work that he'd hired Reconacioto to do. Writing for Vanity Fair, literary journalist Ron Rosenbaum wrote of the Inslaw case, quote, if they ever make a movie of the Inslaw suit, it could be called Mr. and Mrs. Smith go to Washington and meet Franz Kafka. And he says of Hamilton handing Dan Casolaro that document by Reconacioto, quote, the moment he got his hands on that maddening memo with its maze of illusion and reality was the moment Danny's life changed and he began his descent into the obsession that would lead to his death. He was slowly, then rapidly, sucked into a kind of covert ops version of Dungeons and Dragons, with that memo as his guide and Michael Reconacioto as his dungeon master. That's a great quote. Casolaro started thinking that all this stuff and maybe much more besides was connected in a decades-long web of deceit and lies, a conspiracy he dubbed the Octopus. His main informant was a man he referred to as Danger Man, but it would turn out later was totally Michael Reconacioto. At first, it looked like it was all somehow about getting Ronald Reagan elected to the presidency in 1980, a sort of a fulfillment of Barry Goldwater's supporters' wet dreams, which is what Nixon was supposed to do, but then didn't because he was so crazy. 
The tentacles of the octopus spread not just into the U.S. government, but into a shadowy deep state type apparatus that worked behind the election cycle and involved the intelligence community in both America and abroad, as well as organized crime syndicates and dictators in various countries. As Richard Fricker said writes in an article about this in Wired magazine, it was a quote, Bermuda Triangle of spooks, guns, drugs, and organized crime. It was while looking at these events that Casolero came across references to organized crime in southern Arizona, run by Joe Bananas and the bizarre death of Charles Morgan. When he saw that episode of Unsolved Mysteries about this, he reached out to the journalist who'd done most of the legwork on the story, Don Devereaux, the man who possibly was on a hit list for reporting on Morgan, and so in a roundabout way was kind of responsible for the death of computer graphics employee Don Johnston. It looked like Joe Bananas was not bananas about people poking their noses into his business. Danger Man hinted that it was maybe even bigger than that, that it was a global conspiracy to essentially set the clock back on post-World War II social reforms and use new technologies to enrich a wealthy elite, essentially creating a global kleptocratic oligarchy while the masses toiled, unaware of the greedy syndicate that they were supporting. He even told Casolaro that he knew what was really going on at Area 51. Casalero started getting the distinct impression that he himself was being followed and watched, and he started getting threatening phone calls in the night, which made him think that, yes, for sure, he was on to something. On August 5th, 1991, while waiting to hear back from Don Devereaux about gold purchases Charles Morgan had made, Casolaro told a friend that Time Magazine had hired him to write an article about the whole Inslaw octopus mess. This would turn out not to be true, but was maybe wishful thinking on Dan's part. His notebooks are an odd mixture of news clippings, handwritten notes, and poems. As I said before, he was a little bit of a dreamer. He had so much material, he thought maybe there was a book in it, which he was going to call The Octopus, unsurprisingly. Though at least one other source said that the title was actually Indio. He'd written up a treatment for the book, but so far he didn't have any offers, though he did have an agent. On August 6th, he told his neighbor, Olga, who did some housekeeping for him, that he was going away on business to Martinsburg, West Virginia, about 80 miles northwest of Washington, D.C., and she should not expect him back for a while. You see, he was off to meet a source that was going to clarify everything and help him, as he put it, quote, bring back the head of the octopus. While he was gone, she answered his phone calls, many of which were quite threatening. One of them said, quote, I will cut his body and throw it to the sharks. And then an hour later, another man called and simply said, quote, drop dead. Shortly after that, a third call came in in which nobody spoke, but she could hear a radio just playing in the background. These threatening calls continued in a sort of a cycle for quite some time. Dan did make it to Martinsburg, checking into room 517 at the Sheraton Hotel. He stayed a few days having meals, talking with people, and making phone calls. On the 8th, he ate at a pizza hut and flirted with a waitress by quoting the Great Gatsby to her. In the early afternoon of the 9th, he met an engineer from Honeywell, Mike Looney, who gave him some documents. Casalero then dined at a local restaurant, hitting a bar afterwards. The bartender said Dan looked lonely and depressed. Casalero returned to the Sheraton around 5 p.m., and headed to the cocktail bar where he was seen in the company of a man, quote, maybe Arab or Iranian, according to the waitress. A half an hour after that, 
Casolaro bumped into Mike Looney again, who it turned out was staying not only at the hotel, but in the room right next door to Dan. So the two chatted for a while, and then they agreed to meet up downstairs at 8 o'clock. Dan met Mike and mentioned that a big meet with an important source was finally going to happen that night in about an hour at 9 o'clock. He said he just wanted to go off and make a phone call, which he did, but then he came back dejected, saying his source had, quote, blown him off. So Mike and Dan continued chatting for a bit, finally parting ways about 9.30 at night. At 10, Dan came downstairs and told reception he was going out to get some coffee. No one remembered him returning, but that's not very unusual at a large hotel. Everyone who had spoken with him during this whole trip to West Virginia said he was his usual upbeat and charming self, except for that one bartender who said he looked depressed earlier in the day. The next day, August 10th, housekeeping entered room 517 around noon and found Dan Casolaro naked in the bathtub, dead. There were three or four slashes on his right wrist and seven or eight on his left. Blood splattered the wall and floor, creating a scene worthy of a horror movie. Other than that, the room was pretty tidy. There was an empty can of old Milwaukee beer, along with uh, half an empty bottle of wine, two white trash bags, and a razor blade. They would later find four more razor blades in a small package. There was also a single-page note written on paper from the desk notepad that said, quote, To those who I love the most, please forgive me for the worst possible thing I could have done. Most of all, I'm sorry to my son. I know deep down inside that God will let me in. This was taken as a suicide note. An autopsy that afternoon determined he died from blood loss somewhere between 8 and 11 in the morning, the morning that he was found. The very next day, August 11th, the editor of the Village Voice in New York got a phone call, caller unknown, telling him all about the death of Dan Casolaro in a West Virginia Sheraton. Before he knew it, he was getting deluged with letters and phone calls from all kinds of people. Quote, the crazies started coming out of the woodwork, he would later write. Quote, there were vague, unsubstantiated rumors that the mafia was somehow involved, and the wildest story even suggested that the undertaker dealing with his body was an employee of the CIA hired to clean up after an agency assassination. Casolero's family thought there was no way he'd kill himself. Of course, people always say that. And if so, certainly not that way. He was famously squeamish about blood, unable to see even a drop of it without running from the room. According to his brother, who's a doctor, he couldn't even have blood drawn for medical checkups because it made him feel weak and nauseous. Plus, they said, people who saw him on the day and night of the 9th said that he was pretty upbeat. I mean, heck, he was always upbeat. One friend said Dan could make any interaction, no matter how minor, somehow seem like a party. But police saw no forced entry, no one heard anything untoward, and those razor blades looked like they'd been recently purchased, so it seemed like a pretty clear-cut suicide to the police. However, the mystery continued at the funeral. Reportedly, five extremely attractive women, like model attractive, all blondes, came to the funeral dressed in black and cried profusely, though no one of Dan's family or friends knew who they were. And as the ceremony was drawing to a close, a limousine pulled up and a U.S. Army officer in a Class A dress uniform got out and after the service, walked over to the coffin and laid a medal down on it. He then saluted the coffin, turned around, got back in the limo, and left. Five months later, in January 1992, a second autopsy was performed, coming back with the cause of death as blood loss. 
The examiner also noted early stages of multiple sclerosis, but thought this had probably only manifested in very minor ways. Casalero may not even have known that he had it. There were some over-the-counter painkillers in his system, like acetaminophen and some antidepressants, but nothing to knock him out. It still pretty much looked like suicide. A fellow journalist over at Vanity Fair suggested maybe Danny had tried to make his suicide seem mysterious to suggest that he had been murdered in order to encourage others to continue researching the octopus, which he very much thought was real. An FBI task force asked to look into Casalera's death also thought that the verdict of suicide was maybe a little bit hasty and perhaps more investigation was needed. They reached this conclusion despite it being made clear that any opinions other than Danny Casalera committed suicide was perhaps not healthy for one's career. The FBI claims that many of the case files have gone missing, yet there's one FBI document that quite clearly states that those files are not missing, but are being withheld from public dissemination for an indeterminate period of time. So, if there was some sort of secret syndicate or cabal we might be tempted to call the octopus, surely there would be other things that pointed to this besides Dan Casalero's death, right? We've already taken a look at the odd circumstances around Charles Morgan's death in Arizona in 1977, which may have involved the Bonanno family, but were there any others? Oh, yes, indeed, there certainly were. You Better You Bet, bet. a 1981 song by The Who, which actually hit number one on the Billboard charts despite being pretty mediocre. On July 1st, 1981, William Calloway, a member of the Cabazon Band Mission Indians Tribal Council, and Joe Benitez, the former tribal chairman, were waiting around for the current vice chairman of the council, Fred Alvarez, and another tribal member, Ralph Boger, to meet them and a lawyer in the coastal California town of San Juan Capistrano to discuss opening an official investigation into Cabazon tribal business. This meeting was scheduled to take place at 10 in the morning, but then the two hadn't shown up. This was concerning because the pair had previously said some things to local news reporters and then started telling acquaintances that they were marked for death for what they knew. So, Callaway and Benitez drove the 120 miles inland from San Juan Capistrano to Alvarez's home in Rancho Mirage, a small desert city in the Palm Springs area. It was there they found Alvarez and Boger shot in the back of the head execution style with a single 38 caliber bullet. Another person, Patricia Castro, had also been killed the same way. Police estimated the murders had taken place the day before on June 30th. Bizarrely enough, two days after the bodies were discovered, a bulldozer showed up and demolished the entire house. Ralph Boger's daughter, Rachel Begley, said that the police never even notified her or the family of her father's death. They found out about it when they saw a news report on TV. She also said the coroner cremated the body without consulting them and without their consent, and two unknown men wearing black suits showed up at the funeral, hanging around in a rather menacing way. A lawyer from Los Angeles, William Cole, was asked to look into possible connections between the killings and the plans for the Cabazon Casino. This would be the Fantasy Springs Resort Casino in Indio, about 15 miles from Alvarez's house. Remember that one of the possible titles for Dan Casalero's book about the octopus was Indio. 
One of the very first legal Indian casinos in the country had been on Cabazon land. The very first one had been started by the Seminole tribe in Florida, and that had come about partly through the work of Dr. John Philip Nichols. After helping start up that very first Indian casino, Nichols went west in 1978, leveraging contacts he had at the Bureau of Indian Affairs, who paid the Cabazon band $10,000 to use as a salary to hire Nichols as a consultant. Nichols then turned around and borrowed $50,000 to start up a casino here in the Palm Springs desert area and assisted the Cabazons in getting government grants. In 1983, he helped them get $60,000 from HUD for the construction. Who did he borrow that seed money from? Why, from Tommy Marson, who earlier had been convicted of bankruptcy fraud and had serious mob connections. Two other mafia types, Rocco Zangari of Palm Springs and Irving Slick Shapiro, a Jewish mobster from Toledo, Ohio, where he ran a number of quasi-legal businesses and the infamous Aku Aku Club and who, in one journalist's estimation, was responsible for hundreds of deaths. Slick then moved west to Las Vegas, where he started the company Alpha Chemical, which made cleaning supplies, but then he and his goons would threaten casinos into using his company's products. Use my carpet shampoo, or maybe your hotel meets with an accident. You know what I'm saying? He then went out to the Palm Springs area where he met up with Nichols. Nichols hired him and Zangari to run the Cabazon Casino once it got built. So basically, this whole enterprise was riddled with organized crime from the get-go, and Alvarez knew all about it. Lawyer William Cole thought maybe this was why he and his two friends had been killed. Cole noted that all the papers in Alvarez's home had been confiscated by sheriff's deputies, but then never turned over to him or anyone else. Alvarez's mother, Phyllis, said that her son had planned to get the whole casino project shut down, and that is why they had bumped him off. Cole also heard people say Alvarez knew a lot more about illegal arms deals, weapons testing and manufacturing, and modifications being made on Cabazon land to the Promise software created by Inslaw and installed on law enforcement machines around the country. What? Yes. This work involved putting in back doors in the software code so that anyone with the right key could access and possibly even alter all of those legal records. There was also a company called Wackenhut, started in 1954 by a former FBI agent, which ran security for Nevada nuclear test sites and was later used by the CIA as a front for various black ops. They were the ones behind the changes to the Promise software, and some later investigators thought the CIA was using Wackenhut for drug running, a lucrative and untraceable revenue stream, and weapon smuggling into Mexico and other Central American nations. This would essentially become the playbook in the mid-1980s for the Iran-Contra affair. So Wackenhut could be seen as kind of a uh, test case or prototype. Wackenhut co-opted law enforcement officials in Mariposa County, California for drug running, including Paul Page, the county sheriff. Sheriff Sergeant Rod Sinclair in the area not only smuggled drugs, but liked using them. And once, while very high on Demerol, he crashed into three Secret Service agents, killing them. But this incident got hushed up. Today, Wackenhut has changed its name to G4S Secure Solutions, which sounds much more respectable. 
Now, back on Cabazon land near Palm Springs, John Philip Nichols brought his two sons in on the project, as well as CIA contractor Richard Babayan, businessman G. Wayne Reeder, who was at a meeting with Contra leaders Eden Pastora and Raul Arana later in 1981, and Michael Reconacioto, the man who Dan Casalero had encountered through Bill Hamilton and who claimed to be a weapons expert and was the man heading the whole Promise software re-engineering project, the man that Dan called Danger Man. This guy shows up everywhere. Nichols also used tribal land to sell cigarettes through the mail, which he then never paid taxes on. In 1979, two years before the triple murder, he got Department of Defense permission to use Cabazon native land to build a weapons factory. Four years after the murders, Nichols hired a contract killer to murder two drug dealers who kept selling his girlfriend heroin. But then that whole endeavor went tits up, Fargo style, and he got caught and ended up serving 18 months in prison. In 2009, a man named James Hughes was charged with the three murders of Alvarez, Bulger, and Castro. After his stint as an army ranger, he'd been made the tribe's security director. One key bit of evidence against him was a recording secretly made by Rachel Begley, Ralph Bulger's daughter, that she made in 2008. In this recording, he said, quote, Your parents got killed in a mafia hit. That's life. That's what happened. However, the charges didn't stick, and Hughes was released. Giant, Giant Octopus, Octopus Kraken, Kraken, which is a children's song by Dragon D that I wish I hadn't come across while searching for songs about tentacles, but I did, and now it's stuck in my head, probably forever. In January 1982, Michael Reconacioto had finished his work on the Cabazon land, putting in backdoors into Inslaw's Promise software, and had moved to San Francisco where he was doing computer work, as was his roommate. One day, Reconacioto returns home after having been away for a few days to find his roommate, Paul Morasca, hogtied on the floor next to the computer. Paul was dead, and the hard drive had been roughly torn out of the computer. Police investigated and discovered Morasca had been strangled using a wire, an execution method preferred by the Japanese Yakuza. They also found out that he'd been laundering money for the Gambino crime family of Tucson, Arizona, which is probably what Chuck Morgan had also been doing and maybe was killed over back in 1977. Of course, a couple of years later, the Iran-Contra affair hit the news cycle and the whole thing came out, though some insiders said, well, actually not the whole thing. There is a lot more going on. Perhaps what we can say is that Iran-Contra was only one of the many tentacles of the octopus. In May 1990, computer guy Doug Johnston, as mentioned before, was shot in his car, probably mistaken for Don Devereaux, who was on a hit list for poking around into Morgan's death, and who had been contacted by Dan Casalero just before Johnston was killed. In January 1991, a man named Alan David Standorf, who once worked as a civilian at the U.S. Electronic Warfare and Signals Intelligence site Vint Hill Station, and who had recently started working for the NSA and Signals Intelligence, was found folded into the legroom space in the backseat of his car, having been beaten to death in the head with a large object. This obvious murder took place shortly after it came out that Standorf had supplied Dan Casolaro with classified documents about Inslaw's Promise software. 
Just a few months later, in April 1991, Michael Reconacioto's attorney in Philadelphia, Dennis Eisman, was found shot to death in the chest while sitting in his car. He'd driven to a public parking garage to meet a woman who said she had evidence that would corroborate his client's claims about putting back doors into Promise Software. After a brief investigation, the police decided that Eisman had killed himself because he was going to be indicted. Three months after that, in July, Malaysian-born British Financial Times reporter Anson Ng Yong was found shot to death in a bathtub in a hotel room in Guatemala. He had traveled there to interview James Hughes, the mafia hitman who'd worked as director of security at the Campuzan Casino, who would later be charged with the triple murder of Alvarez, Bulger, and Castro, and who would tell Bulger's daughter that it had been a mafia hit. Hugh said he had evidence that connected people inside the U.S. Justice Department to the BCCI banking scandal, you know, that Luxembourg bank that was a clearinghouse for criminals and dictators. Specifically, he said he could prove that there was arms running happening with the collusion of DOJ employees. It's unclear if Yong had met with Hughes and then was killed or if he was killed beforehand. Most of the documents that he'd had in his possession vanished, and while it sure did seem like a professional hit to some, notably California Senator Alan Cranston, who read the report and noticed that Yong had been shot in the chest with a pistol using a silencer, the local police chalked it up to local criminals looking for cash and jewelry and targeting a foreigner. And then, of course, a month later, Dan Casolaro, also investigating Inslaw and the BCCIMS, was also found dead in a hotel bathtub, a supposed suicide. The octopus had pretty far reach, indeed. John Munson was an old pal of Michael Reconacioto, who had maybe turned rat and was working with the DEA to frame Michael for a drug manufacturing charge, specifically meth. Munson's girlfriend, Valley Delahanty, found out about this, contacted Michael, and told him. She also told her sister about the plot, as well as that she had some documents relating to funny business with Inslaw Software, and that she was scheduled to testify in front of a grand jury soon. But then Valley disappeared on August 18, 1992, just over a year after Casalero's death. Just poof, no one seemed to know where she went. She certainly never made that grand jury testimony. Over the next few months, Munson would sometimes, when drunk, blurt out to people at a bar he used to frequent that Val was dead, but no details about this ever emerged, and it was chalked up to just maudlin drunkenness. In April 1993, her skeletal remains were found near Lake Bay, Washington, not far from Tacoma. Crime scene investigators determined that she had apparently gone wading in this creek that runs in and out of Bay Lake, spread out her clothes in the sun to dry, and then sat down on a log when she died. The cause of death, however, could not be determined. On November 5, 1992, the bodies of 41-year-old Gail Spiro, her two daughters, 16 and 11, and her 14-year-old son were all found shot in the back of the head, execution style, on their beds in their upper-class home in Rancho Santa Fe, a town about 25 miles north of San Diego. Gail's husband and the father of the children, Ian Spiro, was missing and thus the prime suspect. Ian was a commodities broker, but in the 1980s, he'd worked as a contractor for various intelligence agencies, including American Intelligence, MI6, and Mossad. 
After four days of searching for him, he turned up dead in his SUV at the edge of the Anza Borrego Desert, 13 miles or so west of the Salton Sea and about 70 miles northeast of San Diego. He was seated behind his wheel, cause of death, ingesting cyanide. Police said it was probably a murder-suicide brought on by financial troubles. But Ian's brother insisted, no, no, he'd been killed either by the CIA or by Mossad. It did come out that Ian had been involved in the so-called October Surprise back in 1980, wherein the release of the American hostages in Iran was delayed until after the election, a deal brokered by Reagan's people and which involved a number of weapons and some sums of money being covertly funneled to the new fundamentalist regime in Iran. Whether that actually happened or not is a conversation in conspiracy circles, but Ian Spiro was involved in some negotiations with Iranians at that time on behalf of Reagan's people. This all came out in 1995, as did the fact that the previous year, Ian Spiro had been in touch with, drumroll please, Dan, Dan Casolero. Supposedly, he had some computer equipment that he said would verify the DOJ had in fact been monkeying around with the code of Inslaw's Promise software. But then Casolero died and that went nowhere. And then there are the spies. Ari Ben Menashe, who was now a writer and businessman living in Montreal, used to be an arms dealer as well as working for the Israeli Military Intelligence Directorate, or Amman as it is known. In his book Gideon's Spies, The Secret History of Mossad, author Gordon Thomas claims that Ben Menashe had obtained a version of the Promise software that contained the Trojan horse backdoor access. He promptly passed this along to Mossad, who used it throughout the 80s and 90s. He also told numerous people that the October Surprise thing was totally true. He should know because he was right there in the middle of the whole thing, helping broker the deal. He spoke fluent Farsi after all. In 1989, he would get arrested for trying to sell Iran three Lockheed C-130 Hercules transport planes with false papers. During that investigation, it came out that he had traveled extensively to Central and South America during the time period of Iran-Contra, supposedly as a translator, but as a few people pointed out, why on earth would anyone need a Persian-speaking translator in Chile? And then there is Robert Hansen. He joined the FBI in 1976 after being rejected due to budget constraints from working at the NSA in cryptology. He got into counterintelligence in 1979 and started creating a database of Soviet intelligence gathered by the Bureau, as well as evaluating which agents might have been turned or doubled, as the jargon had it. In 1985, he wrote a letter to the KGB offering to spy for them in exchange for $100,000 cash. He was put on the payroll and continued spying through the Soviets all the way through the breakup of the USSR, handing over secrets to Russia all the way until the year 2001. He is currently serving 15 consecutive life sentences with no chance of parole at a supermax in Colorado. Now, during his debriefing, after he was caught, he said that one of the things he'd passed along to the Soviets was this Trojan horse version of the Promise software that all of this seems to be about. And if that is true, it means the Soviets then also had access to American law enforcement records. It is a weird and wild tale spanning decades and involving something like at least 20 deaths. 
The octopus, it would seem, started in the 70s with attempts to infiltrate and also basically steal Insla's promised software, a project that looped in intelligence operatives, business people, and organized crime. People high up in the Reagan campaign and later administration cut a deal with Iran to delay releasing American citizens so that they could win the election and then use the network that they created for that endeavor to trade drugs for arms all through the 1980s, mainly interfering in Central and South America. In the meantime, various versions of that promised software kept making its way into the hands of mobsters and Russian and Israeli intelligence. And anyone who got too close to all this got squeezed often to death by the tentacles of the octopus. Or it might go deeper than you think. There are references out there about a company called the Bunge Corporation, which was known by finance people back in the 50s and 60s as the octopus. This company, which may or may not be the agribusiness, started in 1818 in Amsterdam, but which eventually moved to St. Louis, supposedly worked on mind control techniques, which were then deployed, so some say in the conspiracy sphere, on Lee Harvey Oswald and later Jack Ruby, all around the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Also, E. Howard Hunt had been involved in all of this back in the day, as well as the Bay of Pigs, and later he was one of the Watergate burglars. Well, you see, Hunt had been in regular phone contact with Dan Casolaro, you see, and had told him some things about mind control techniques and how they had developed and progressed since the late 50s. Richard Asioto makes frequent references to Area 51. He says that's where the U-2 spy plane was developed, as well as the SR-71 Blackbird and the Aurora. Some who gaze into the eyes of the octopus say that most of the stuff talked about in this entire episode is not true at all, that what was really going on was corruption between people at Hughes Aircraft and U.S. government people who were all working on secret projects at Area 51 which is, has nothing to do with UFOs, has everything to do with super secret airplane tech. There are also secret deals that led to the construction of Pine Gap, a secret surveillance base in the middle of the Australian outback that is used by the Five Eyes Network, talked about in a previous episode. And the hacked version of the promised software was really just the beginning of a global surveillance initiative that has today infiltrated pretty much every single electronic device on the planet. One way the Trojan Horse Code was spread was quite ingenious. Those behind the octopus let people like Ari ben Manashi and Robert Hansen think that they had stolen copies of the software, but what they really had was software that had been further modified so that while, say, Mossad thought they were using it to spy on the Americans, the Americans were using it to access all of Mossad's files. The same thing goes for all those criminal families who had copies. Unbeknownst to them, all their secrets were laid bare by the double-hacked software ready to be exploited by the octopus. Or... This whole thing has been made up by fantasists like Michael Reconacioto, who is the source for a lot of this, and Ari ben Menashe. Though there are quite a few deaths associated with this, and many of those deaths might seem suspicious, it could also just all be coincidence. I really don't know what, if anything, is true about the octopus, apart from the fact that there are an awful lot of dead people. But boy, it is one hell of a story. Thank you. 
Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.